Jan Swafford is an American composer and the author of several best-selling musical biographies. This is Jan Swafford. I'm Duncan Yammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Cool. Uh, well, Jan, thanks for uh, for joining us again today. Um, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so we had talked last time um, we did a podcast about doing um, an episode where we just go through a bunch of like more popular music, uh, a lot of it from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, that kind of era. Uh, and we're going to jump in today to a bunch of different um, music and hopefully talk about it. Um, but is there, you had mentioned kind of in your email that you look at this as sort of like a golden era of pop music on the radio before we we sort of dive in and start dissecting these songs um why is it that you wanted like what, what about this particular era in music do you well i what i really meant was the, the i think the radio of the 50s and 60s um before sort of the main era we're going to be talking about was I think a certain golden age. And this is stuff that I grew up when I was before teens and early teens, maybe my brother listened to the radio all the time. And pop music in those days, the, there, was no, there were no demographic uh, radio stations in the 50s and early 60s. Every, all the pop music stations were trying to play things that appeal to a wide variety of listeners. Right. And the result of that, I'm trying to get to um, Spotify and a 50s collection, but I'll just try to remember what you got is just things that were absolutely all over the map all the time. So you had sort of early rhythm and blues and early rock and roll of the kind of Bill Haley era, but you also had things like Unchained Melody, which is practically operatic. And uh, you had folk music like... Um, uh, the um, um, uh, MTA and, P and Tom Dooley and pieces like that. You had uh, Greensleeves, the old, uh, you know, medieval tune. Greensleeves was a big hit in the, in the 50s. Uh, Mac the Knife from, you know, German, <laughs> German, you know, Weimar era um, Music. These were all things that were hits in the fifties. The Weavers were had a couple of hits, mm -hmm. so they were just all over the place. And it was a fascinating time to listen to the radio because anything could come at you. I think radio now is just really homogenized in a given channel. It's all pretty much the same kind of thing. That's nichey and um, to me a whole lot less interesting as a, as a whole. But the main pieces I wanted to talk about. The fact is, I've read this. Somebody did a study and they found that most of the popular music that people listen to in adulthood and uh, into their later years is stuff they listened to when they were young. Right. It just sticks with you. And that's absolutely true with me. There's not, you know, I poke around for pop, newer pop music that I'm interested in and usually don't find much. Uh, and when I'm listening at all, I'm going back to old stuff. Okay. Which is... Now, classic stuff, classic rock, and um, those are the kind of pieces I want to talk about. And do I think they're better than current stuff? I think on the whole, for me, they are. But that's what we all think. I was going to ask, so do you think that this is, because uh, obviously you're a classically uh, trained composer, you, you, you've you know, dedicated 
life to music. Um, so you, your opinion is a little different than uh, someone else who's of your age who just is a casual fan. Do you, are, are you able to sort of take yourself out of the picture and look at this objectively and say, okay, this is not just nostalgia here. This era of music, at least popular music on the radio, was better. I think it was in many ways in terms of imagination. And we'll get into this authenticity. The, I think in popular music, there's a big problem with authenticity. But I, you know, I want to put that off a little. Okay. Um, but the range of imagination of the Beatles to start with is just incomparable. Yes. There's, there's never been anything like that. Um, and I think also, if you look at Beatles performances, uh, on TV and that sort of thing, they weren't they weren't particularly flashy performers. That was mainly about the music, and I think in a way, image and performance took over at a certain point as being more important than the music. My trouble with most pop music is that it, even a tune I like the first time I hear it, but the third time I hear it, it just doesn't interest me anymore because musically there's not enough there. And meanwhile, I am and always have been, even when I was a young, nerdy guy as a teenager, I'm completely immune to coolness. <laughs> coolness never meant anything to me. I was never cool and I never cared about it. I never knew what it was. Yeah. So I'm sort of immune to the, the kind of pop, populism effect of popular music. I just gravitated to stuff that interested me, though it was stuff that was quite popular at the time. You know, I'm, the pieces I'm talking about are all pretty much acknowledged big hits of their era and classics now. Yeah, and, and I liked a certain amount of weird stuff too, which we'll get into. I yes, um, I, I saw the the Captain Beefheart on your list, which <laughs> is a that's about as weird as it got. Exactly. Um, well, you mentioned the Beatles just now, and they are, in terms of popular music, I think it's fair to say that they're a gold standard. Um, I wanted one of the songs you um, you included in, in your list of um, you know recommendations here is Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, we can start there. We can start wherever. But I, I would rather start at the other end with a little right. bit of, um, just to show their range and where they started. Mm -hmm. Start with a little bit of... Um, she loves you. Yes. Yeah. Because this is where they started. This is where they became famous. This kind of thing. So. She loves you. Yeah. 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 She loves you. Just to make sure you can hear this, right? Oh yeah. Okay. It's you she's thinking of. She oh really? Me that's another. <laughs> so if, to begin with, Paul McCartney especially was a terrific tunesmith. Yeah. One of the, and, and a point when tunes really mattered, the melody really mattered. Another, another, another. I mean, rock and roll basically isn't that melodic on the whole, but McCartney was a tunesmith, and so he used it very well so not that much later than you know a kind of teenage rocker like she loves you we had something like yesterday which is you know just an absolute um pop standard of the best kind and he he called this paul mccartney did at one point his most complete like artistically complete work that he had done where it all came together yesterday. i agree and 
and he did it as simply as possible. It's just him and a guitar straight, straight through. Yeah. Nothing fancy. All my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why she had to go? I, I forgot about the string quartet, which is, yeah. of course, marvelous and, and is a classical reference. I said now, from a musical perspective, are you are you listening to this as as a complex, deep work of music? Uh, as a catchy tune, as, as something else? I mean, what stands out to you music? It's catchy, but it's also well-constructed. It has a good shape. And, and most rock tunes are very flat uh, in shape. And this has a sense of, you know, it's high point, it's low point. There's something very elegant about it. The harmony is simple, but quite elegant. Um, simplicity is hard. Simplicity is difficult to achieve. And this kind of simplicity that just works so well is a hell of an achievement, no matter whether it's classical or popular or anything else. Yeah. I mean, there's something, there's a just, there's a rightness about this tune that is, it almost seems to have written itself. And that's that's one of the definitions of classical, of classic. Mm. As in like an enduring work of art? Yes. And it's not like I'd put it up there with Beethoven's Ninth, that's not what this is about. Sure. But a, good, a certain amount of classical pieces are just beautiful little tunes. Yeah. Um, now, I'd like to compare that with where they got, they got into Dylan, they got into more imaginative and surreal kind of lyrics. And I'm thinking about Norwegian Wood, which is a, clearly John Lennon's tune and words. Um, and this is sort of folk music based, but it's just kind of wonderfully weird. And there's also a certain perfection about this, I think. Let's give it a listen. It's a little bit Indian too, with a sitar. That was one of their early big influences. I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. beginning to integrate influences from an, an astounding variety of sources, classical, Indian, and they kept going. Yeah. Um, British Music Hall was a big deal for them. Um, when I'm 64 and Sgt. Pepper is basically an imitation British Music Hall tune. And the, the thing about the Beatles, again, they authenticity and rock and roll is a big problem because it's something that was basically invented by American black people. It's, it's an African-American genre. 
And the question is, how do you relate to that in a way that's not forced, in a way that has some authenticity to it? And I think the Beatles didn't deal so much in that kind of authenticity, the way the Rolling Stones, for example, did as another British group. What the Beatles dealt in is wide-ranging originality and, and, and stylistic flexibility. They were just all over the place. And I've always said that I felt McCartney was gave John Lennon musicality and John gave McCartney imagination mm-hmm. and, and words. Because um, Paul had a weakness for sentimentality and John was just not as musical as Paul, I think. And then there was George, who was a whole other thing. Um, so now let's look at one of their sort of classically oriented pieces, which, and the other thing I, I'll mention about the Beatles is to a degree, and I don't know if anybody had quite done this in pop music before them, at least in, in supposedly rock. A lot of Beatles isn't rock and roll, and it's not dance music. They were getting away from the idea that all the pieces had to be dance music. Yeah. Um, um, she's Leaving Home is a waltz. Uh, and Penny Lane, uh, which is one of my favorite tunes of theirs, which has a famous Bach trumpet, high trumpet part. It, it's just a wonderfully singular tune. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it's dance music or not. In other words, at this point, a piece by the Beatles was getting to be just a piece rather than a, another dance tune. Let's listen. Now you can dance to this. low for me. Stop and say hello. On the corner is a bank of the motor car. The little children laughing him behind his back. And the banker never wears a mask. In the pouring rain. Very strange. Penny Lane is in my ears and in my I was talking to someone, uh, this is a friend of mine's girlfriend, and she said that, I don't know if you know the band One Direction, but no. they're like a famous, you know, boy band today, have been compared to the Beatles in terms of um, being the biggest boy wait, band. Wait, wait, turn it back up for a second. Yes. There's the Bach trumpet, and it was played, I think, by the first chair of the London Philharmonic, something of that order. That's, yeah. And this piece also is beginning to get into their studio manipulations, because it, it, it stops and goes away and then comes back in this kind of phantasmagoria. So they're beginning also to be very influenced by um, uh, electronic music, and, and remember Karl Heinz Stockhausen, the great German electronic composer is on the cover of Sergeant, is one of the people on the cover of Sergeant Pepper. Mm. And this is also has a lot of course to do with George Martin, who was a classical musician and, and very, you know, introduced them to all this thing and had was very astute in the recording studio, even though Penny Lane, I mean, uh, Sergeant Pepper, as astounding as the manipulations, the recording tricks and that are, 
It was done on a three-channel recorder. Um, way before the era of home computers and home studios. Yeah, and thousand-channel recording and things like that. Yeah. What you were going to make the point of the girlfriend, though? Oh, oh yeah. So I, I'm just saying, you know, she says that One Direction is just more interesting than the Beatles, and I'm I'm with you on the the point where it's not just nostalgia. Like this is a case of a boy band, effectively. Could have easily stopped with songs like "She Loves You," uh, yeah. and, and done that for the rest of their career. And they were wildly popular. Yeah, they could have just stuck with that, and then they started they, you know, going on to all these weird areas of exploration, and it seemed like all the characters in the band played like a really important role, like you were talking about. It's just, I mean, how it seems like a lot of composers work alone. How? Well, they, they quit performing at a certain point and just became a recording group. And that's when, it, that's when they really took off. And the great prophecy of that, I mean, there are people who think their greatest album is Revolver, and I, I can see why. Um, but the last tune in Revolver, that's, that's Tomorrow Never Knows, which is, I think, just an astounding tune. Yes. Uh, for somebody who's a few years ago were doing She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah. And um, it's all about recording techniques and manipulation in the studio. And it's also a prophecy of what's coming. What they're saying here is, get ready. What is coming is going to be extraordinary. And what was next was Sergeant Pepper. When they started, who could have predicted this? Yeah. It's as I say, it's astounding. And as a musician, one of the things that knocks me out harmonically, because they were great in pop music harmonic experimenters too, is um, musicians will get this. There's a there's a, a flat seven um, added under the tonic chord that is just blows me away. <laughs> in this low fuzz bass. Um, and that's the kind of musical things that, that make it genuinely interesting from the musical point of view or something like yesterday it's just it's just a nice little piece in folk song and in, in folk style and which is not easy to do and it's a real accomplishment in its own way and then and then they could do that both they could do that and they could do this and they could do everything in between and they just kept going i know and they, they were only together how long like I, I think it was like nine maybe ten years Something like, well, if you count the very early years of right. the pool and all that, that's a whole, I don't even know. Yeah. And this, um, 
this track here has the the, the the drum loop, which is very like standard now in pop music, and it gives it this weird hypnotic quality. Like and it's not a backbeat; it's a it's a very. Um, I mean, you you can dance to this too, but it's not really a dance tune. Yeah, I, I just love the way this song ends, repeating the phrase of the beginning again and again. And it's yes. Like, very and there were, it was an announcement. We're beginning something really new now, and just wait. Yeah. Uh, very, very smart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I come and go with the Beatles. Sometimes I just listen to the stuff, and it sounds dated, and sometimes I listen to it, and it's fresh again, and that's how it goes. But that happens with classical composers, too. You know, Aaron Copeland, I've... I loved when I was a kid, I burned out on, and then I came back to, and then so forth and so on. It, it happens. And, and um, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, you're good. I, I was just saying, um, uh, well, one, was there another Beatles track you wanted to listen to? Oh, yeah. I wanted to just talk about their irony. Yes. So one of the big 60s anthems was All You Need Is Love, which was a very 60s sentiment. But what they did with it, you, a lot of their music, this is a case of not just verbal irony, which they were also very good at, purely, I think, purely musical irony, and play it, and I'll tell you what I mean. Okay. Purely musical irony. This is a 60s album about all you need is love and the, the era of love and so forth and so on. And that's a very John Lennon kind of thing. But it, to begin with, it starts off with this very brass band kind of British. What is that? Um, -dum -bum 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 -bum. British tune. And then the refrain is all you need is love. But the, he, he's, he, by the way, another thing about this tune that is so Beatles is that it has a four beat followed by three beat in the main tune. <laughs> How people danced to that in those days, I do not know, but the Beatles were always messing around with rhythm in these ways, which is absolutely not classic rock in any way. You're changing meters from four to three, that's nuts, it's, but it's so natural when they do it. But then he does the gets to the refrain, all you need is love, and then what you hear is this British corny music hall lick. 
Completely corny. And that's what I mean by purely musical irony. What that what that lick, that corny lick says, is all you need love? Is that really true? Or is this is this a little bit of a cliche too? It's both. Yeah. And that kind of irony is one of their great virtues, I think, um, because they were not—they were not trying to be deadly serious, but they were, and they weren't necessarily trying to make statements, even when they did seem to be making a statement, because nobody noticed at the time the irony of this piece. They just said, "Oh yeah, all you do is love." It's, it's '60s. It's, it's, um, uh, it's a hippie sentiment. Yeah, and they I didn't, didn't notice, notice the complexity either. I, I, like, what? I didn't notice it until you had pointed it out either, where like, clearly it's a little tongue-in-cheek. I mean, Absolutely tongue-in-cheek. You know, like, um, and I don't think, like, they believe the opposite. Like, I, I don't think no. they're fun of the concept, but it's just, it's a self-awareness that you would not see in a lot of other more, like, preachy um, type 60s music. Which makes it something more than a sentimental 60s anthem. Right. It becomes something much more than that. Yeah. Um, and that is that is absolutely the kind of irony, and a lot of it's in the words too. I'm I'm critical of the Beatles a lot. I think what they do a certain amount of what I call bullshit for the sake of a rhyme. Mm -hmm. But um, pop music lyrics are often kind of thrown together anyway. Yeah. But some of their lines are really they should have gone back and worked on them a little bit. But still, <laughs> that's I'm, I don't really care <laughs> if yeah. it's a good if it's a great piece otherwise. So, and um, we we can move on to, to other artists, but I mean, do you, is there anything that we want to sum up about the Beatles? I mean, are, are they going to last musically? I mean, you said you wouldn't put them on the pedestal of like Beethoven's Ninth, but do you think in a hundred years people will be everything lasts now? That's one of the things we can't leave anything behind because everything's on online now. Everything's in, in, eternal in media. Yeah. So I, I think they'll still be around, yeah, because their their music is so appealing uh, stylistically. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of areas for pop music to go stylistically. Um, yeah. In some ways, they may have gone about as far, and they may have pushed it about as far as they as far as it could go. And what they did toward the end with an album like "Let It Be" um, is that the name of the album, or is that I think that's that is the name of the album yeah yeah i mean they were really sort of returning to roots there and doing simpler and more rhythm and bluesy kind of things but they were also putting tunes together and experimenting with that kind of thing um but they really i think at a certain point ran out of places to go just like i kind of fear that jazz did a long time ago mm. and i'm a huge jazz fan um and wish it as well as possible but um, one of the things about classical music is that it has a voracious appetite for anything and everything. Western classical music, and it, it can absorb anything. So it always has, it has much further, more possibilities of places to go than something that's like jazz or, or pop or, or rock and roll or rhythm and blues, which are, once they get too far beyond their orbit, they become something else in a way. Mm. But that's a whole big, complicated issue, and I'm sure people would argue with me about it. But I, I don't see, 
I don't see that I'm wrong <laughs> looking at the history of pop music and jazz, which I still listen to a lot, but again, mostly old stuff. So I wanted to talk about the Stones, who were, who were you know, friends of the Beatles, same era, Rolling Stones. And by the way, I have to tell you this story. This is, my, this is three weeks ago, my favorite Rolling Stones story. I went in to get my second COVID shot and what at this church in Dorchester. And what I heard in the sound system blasting away was, was Mick Jagger, give me shelter, give me shelter. It's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. <laughs> and I went to a nurse and said, hey, that's really clever that you did that. And she looked puzzled. And it turned out they just had the radio on. It was wow. purely coincidence. Nice. <laughs> but one of the more amazing coincidences I've, I've heard in a while. Yeah, she should have just rolled with it. Said that. <laughs> well, she she didn't know that tune. She didn't she didn't know anything about the Stones. I I gotcha. And I found that when stuff is on, you know, playing in background, people don't even hear it. I was in a restaurant once, and there was a a rock tune on, and it, there was something wrong with the sound system. It would play for twenty seconds and repeat. And I complained to the waitress, and nobody had noticed it. It had been going on for fifteen minutes. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. I'm All right. I digress. No worries. <laughs> sure. um, I, I've got Give Me Shelter. Do you want to listen to that or do you want Yeah, to this is one of the classics and I just want to make sort of a musical point. Begin with, Stones are basically roots rock and roll and they were kind of, the Beatles are very concise, very tight. One of the, when I first started hearing the Stones, they sounded sloppy to me because they didn't care about that stuff. They wanted a certain rawness of sound. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if, I think they do it in this piece. It's classic, um, um, I'm blanking on the guitarist. There's Mick and there's... Uh, Keith Richards. Keith Richards would run his, an acoustic guitar through speakers and do various things. With, it wasn't an electric guitar and you putting in distortion and things like that. It's one of the secrets of their sound. It's a very raw sound. Um, but that rawness is part of their authenticity, I think. Again, they, they wanted to stay close to the sort of rhythm and blues, African-American roots, whereas the Beatles were off exploring, the Stones sort of stuck to what they did. And this is one of their classics, certainly. And I want to make a musical point about this one. That's... Oh, actually, yes. I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay.
this is all electric guitar, so never mind about that. What I like about this, this song still gives me goosebumps. And I heard an interview with, with Keith Richards on Radio once when his book came out. It amazed me that he could get from one end of a sentence to another and I'd given what he'd been through. It actually was fairly articulate. I was, I was surprised. Um, this is obviously one of the pieces he's most proud of. Um, and I like the way it accumulates. I mean, most rock tunes just sort of start, wham. This starts very quietly and gradually develops. And in fact, it sort of develops intensity through the whole piece. And there's a kind of rolling momentum that it develops. Um, and it's a very, the words are very serious. It's about, it's about assassination in a way. The shot away, which sounds, sounded so reassuring when I was getting my COVID shot, is the shot is a gunshot that takes somebody out and now things can change in a moment. It's just a shot away. Um, but I like the way it's sort of gradually accumulated. And the long introductions were really quite unusual at that time. So it is, it is sort of a root song. It's absolutely rhythm and blues. Um, and that interview, Richards and he, and he and Jagger have had their problems, but he just at one point said, what a great performer. Nick is just a fantastic performer, and he is. Um, and a unique one, though. There's nobody like him. So um, the, this long introduction and the way it accumulates, even though this is a root song, it sounds like a live performance, though it isn't. Um, the voices are mixed, mixed weirdly low. I've never understood that. You, you could barely make them out. But um, it's still very original. It's put together in a quite original way. Most rock tunes are just verse, refrain, verse, refrain. This is something much more developmental than that. And it's quite interesting. Um, so the other one I do want to do, and it's another favorite of mine, is Street Fighting Man. And here it's the way... This is more typical verse refrain, but the refrain, what gets me is the way the refrain just sort of kicks. There's a kind of a adrenaline jolt of energy that happens in the refrain that I've always thought was really special about this tune. The sound here is so interesting. This is one of the ones where I think Keith Richards is using an acoustic guitar, but, do, but running it through speakers and doing some kind of pushing the speakers. It again has the effect of a live performance, but it's really very layered and put together um, carefully. And yet it still sounds very live and, and immediate. And again, the way the whole texture and rhythmic intensity changes 
at the refrain, I think is, is very, very special with this tune. So it's always been a great favorite of mine. And, and it's on Beggar's Banquet, which is, I think, my single favorite complete rock and roll album. Really? Yeah, I can't, I can't offhand think of one as a whole that I like better, even though there are some tunes on that one that I skip to. Do you, what about the album as like a musical piece unto itself? Like one of the reasons why I like Sgt. Pepper is it has sort of like an arc to it, and narrative, yeah. and concept. Well, the Beatles did that and the Stones did it once and they got into Psychedelia once with um, uh, Satanic Majesty's Request. And I read a Mick Jagger interview when he basically said people didn't like it, so we, we didn't do that anymore. <laughs> That's where the Stones were trying to get into Beatles territory and it didn't go well, even though I like that album. A lot of people don't, but I do. And that's sort of a large concept album, but by and large, they didn't do that. They just did collections of tunes. And, um, they might have wanted to, but they decided it wasn't, it wasn't working for them. Yeah, because people have sort of pitted the, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones against each other, or said that you know they were trying to confuse the Stones were copying the Beatles. Do you see any sort of um, comparison or competition between them? I I never read anything about that. I always got the impression they got along fine and were sort of friends. But I, I don't know. I know the Beatles played on Satanic Majesties. Oh. The, the the cover is a hologram. And supposedly, if you if you hold the cover just right, you see pictures of the Beatles. But I was never able to find them. What about the uh, the Beach Boys? Were were you a fan of them at all? No, no. Okay. Now I am. A, I listen to a few tunes like Good Vibrations and things like that. I was when I was in high school, we considered them too teenagery for us. We we felt above them, but we weren't that interested in the sixties and rock and roll either. I mean, the, mm. the high school band and orchestra and chorus crowd, we felt ourselves a little above all that. Oh, I didn't get God. into rock and roll until I was in college. I hated it when I was a teenager, though wow. a lot of what I didn't like as a teenager, I still don't like. Yeah. But also I was a nerd and a snob. So, you know, I had to get past that a little bit. And I, it's, it's really Sergeant Pepper as much as anything that, that, that brought me around. That's when, I, that's when I sort of went back and started getting interested. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was a senior in college. And um, so we have, we have a number, uh, just based off the, the people who you suggested, we have a number of artists that we can check out. Um, what, it, among... Credence Clearwater Revival, Bob Dylan, um, Leonard Cohen, maybe. It, it, Bob Dylan has, has sort of an, like an outsized stature in the musical world. Do you think that his his legend and mystique, I mean, he won a Nobel Prize in literature. Do, do you think he, he stacks up to that reputation? No. Okay. <laughs> and, I'm a, and I'm a Dylan fan. I think his stature in pop music is is tremendous and should be. But the idea of his winning winning the Nobel Prize, I just thought was ridiculous. And I think he thought it was ridiculous. Um, That's not what he's about. He's not a literary figure. He's a a pop music figure who wrote very, very interesting words sometimes. I I got in trouble a few years ago. Are we going to run out of time or can we sort of go as long as we want? We can go as long as you want. Well, I I wanted to work up to Dylan a little bit. Okay. Can we go back to Credence? Yes. 
Um, and I'm not going to spend too much time on them because credence is to me is sort of a, a, a taste of mine that I, I almost have to apologize for. But what? this gets into that thing of authenticity. Credence is very much a roots band. Uh, and they have this sort of New Orleans persona and they sing about New Orleans topics, even though they were very much a California band. They didn't come up in New Orleans at all. Yeah. So in a way, it was an act, but I, I, let's play a little bit. The way you can see, I think, their sense of how grounded they were in R&B in the past is their version of Heard It Through the Grapevine, which is second, I think, only to Marvin Gaye's. Uh, and yet it's quite an original take on this tune. That's it. And they also did a very good version of uh, Midnight Special, which is an old Lead Belly tune. So they were grounded in that kind of thing. And I think that gave them, I mean, they basically are playing very simple rhythm and blues. And so there's not much musical interest in the harmony or the melody or things like that. But I do say that they're an extraordinarily tight band. And they, were, they had a sort of perfection, a kind of classical perfection, even in the guitar solos. Everything seems absolutely concise and just so, everything they did. And I just read something recently that I think is, is indicative that, that John Fogarty, who led the group and wrote a lot of the stuff, he, they played at Woodstock, but he would never let their performance at Woodstock be released in recording or on the film because he thought it was sub, subpar. So he was very interested in a kind of perfectionism, and I, that's one of the things that I like about them musically. And then they just had these great original tunes like Down on the Corner, which uh, are original, but the groundedness in Roots shows on these tunes too. Try that. Yes. Oh, 
there you have sort of the, a rocker with a very New Orleans theme. But there's something just so about every gesture, every you know, the, whether it's the the bass, the bass guitar and the drums that is so polished. And otherwise, though, it's just a feel-good tune. But the fact is, a certain amount of credence is very serious, verging on poetic ideas that are not just feel-good at all. And and one of my favorites in that sense is Bad Moon, Bad Moon Rising, which is really a kind of ominous lyric and the music fits it very well. sort of folk metaphysical unrest about this tune. <laughs> about as close as rock is ever going to get to that in lyrics, I guess. And it's interesting when you talk about sort of like the musical limitations of popular music as a genre. Uh, I'm looking at the timestamps of all these songs, and every single one of them, the chorus has to come in, except for maybe one of the Beatles songs, the chorus has to come in within the first minute. Because mm. that's the, the hook that catches that's the hook, yeah. And it goes out on radio and it needs to, you know, somehow start off the chorus even better, you know. It's. Um, well, the Beatles ignored that a certain amount of the time. I mean, tomorrow never knows. There's, there's no hook. Right. Unless the hook is just the incredible texture and wild stuff that's coming, coming out of that. Um, well, now we can get to Dylan. And I'll just say that I got in some trouble a few years ago. I wrote a a slate article about Leonard Cohen actually and I was comparing him to Dylan and I'm great fans of both of them and people thought I was putting down Dylan in comparison to Leonard Cohen but that's not actually what I was saying one of the things I've learned as a writer is that when you write something and you push people's buttons they don't even hear what you say yes so people were jumping on me some because they thought I was putting down Dylan and I wasn't at all what I was trying to say is that I thought Dylan is mainly wonderful in his kind of wild imagination and his famously surreal lyrics. And also a lot of his lyrics are just grudges. You know, they're just him spouting off about how pissed off he is at one thing or one person at another. Um, and his bilelessness is part of that too. But let's, let's start with Blowing in the Wind because he simply started as a folky. Uh, and I think this is based on an old tune, but this is an absolute classic folk tune that could have come around any time in 200 years. And it's grounded in Woody Guthrie and things like that. Everybody knows this tune. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned 
The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. So this came out of improvising and folk music and Woody Guthrie and that and that whole thing. Uh, and and I think there's a he was totally steeped in that at the time. And I and this was the folk revival era. Um, and I think that is the authenticity of this. But then, I don't know what, a decade later, he was doing Subterranean Homesick Blues, which is just marvelous pop surrealism. Um, and as, why, as berserk as the lyrics are, I think most of us can recite them from most of it from memory. And that's one of the things that I was reading something recently about Dylan, where they're saying that, you know, the first time he put out an album that was electric guitar it, it was a feeling of like oh we thought we knew who this guy was but clearly yeah. he's doing something entirely different or he's a yeah. different person let's this is subterranean homesick blue of this tune it's hilarious it is completely off the wall you can't listen to it without laughing it's not moving right. it's got tremendous vitality this is the band behind him and they're just rowdy as hell and not you know anything but polished they're the opposite of Creedence Clearwater but that is their that's their sound and one that I like even more than this because it gets it's still surrealism I can't say I like it more, but it's, um, there's a kind of biblical Paul hanging over it. I don't know how to put it. And, and that's um, uh, Highway 61 Revisited, which of course has nothing whatever to do with the tune. Fabulous first line. Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, well, you want this killing done? God said, all down Highway 61. He's getting into a kind of personal, off-the-cuff mythology. There's something kind of mythological about all this. He starts with, with the Bible and just goes into these 
you know, these amazing characters, and you can just you can just lose yourself in the imagery and the and the characters of the song, and it, and also is completely apart from the verse refrain of, of popular music, except that it ends up out on Highway 61 every time. It's not really refraining. It's sort of a talking tradition, which is an old folk tradition that he did a lot of. He didn't bother with tunes uh, because it's all about the words. The music is just a vehicle for these marvelous, surreal words. And you talk about uh, more of the Stones, but also partly the Beatles coming out of this sort of blues, uh, African-American music tradition. Uh, whereas Bob Dylan, you're saying, is more more folk. Is that a totally yeah. separate tradition? And going back, yeah. I mean, he, he eventually he's, he, there's a certain amount of rhythm and blues eventually too after he went electric. But he's founded. I mean, where he started was folk tradition, and it was the folk revival started with uh, this one recording release. I don't want to go into that. It's too complicated, but it's yeah. very interesting. And I can't. Harry Clark is that his name? who released this collection of folk music. And I think that, as far as I know, started the folk revival. Yeah, Harry Clark, the Irish artist? No. Okay. No, so I'm not remembering the name right. Anyway, it, I think a lot of it came from that, and, and I can trace a lot of what happened with Dylan and Joan Baez. By the way, for folk revival, let's play a little of Joan Baez, because they, she and Dylan were, were an item for a while, and they both started off at Club 31 in Cambridge. Yes. And um, her first recording, the first song is an, old, is an old British ballad called Silver Dagger, and when you first heard this voice and this pure voice of hers just doing absolutely straightforward folk it was just i thought revelatory and to hear her for the first time is unforgettable don't sing love songs you wake my mother she's sleeping here right by my side and in her right hand silver dagger she says that i can't be your course and maybe that's Dylan seeing that is why he changed to electric guitars because there was not a whole lot of places to go um, creatively well again it's a very constrained style and once you stretch it so far it isn't what it is anymore yeah some styles have great flexibility and others don't and I, and I think uh, Western classical music, of all the music I know, has the most flexibility because it can do anything and still be itself. Because, you know, we have four or five hundred years of constant change in Western classical music. And how far can you stretch folk music before it isn't folk music anymore? But I mean, it may turn into something else quite interesting. I'm not saying that. Yeah. 
Um, so let's get to Leonard Cohen. And what I said in that Slate article was simply that I thought uh, subterranean homesick blues is not really about our lives and our loves and our losses and our feelings. Cohen is about feeling. And what I was saying basically in his lyrics, A, that Cohen is a true poet, which others aren't. I mean, Cohen was publishing books of poetry before he went into, into music. He's founded in the folk tradition too. And he's, he's a pretty, he's not a great poet, but he was a pretty accomplished one, surely as a poet. And he went into pop music because to get girlfriends. I mean, that's, he said <laughs> so, and that's, that's what he did. Um, but he had a distinct imagination. What he didn't have at first is much voice or musicality. His music was always a vehicle for the poetry. So he started off, and when I first got acquainted to him, was a song like Suzanne, which was a, which was a hit at the time and let's, let's play a little bit and it's it's a wonderful lyric and, a, and an interesting one and unique to him Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river you can hear the boats go by Spend the night beside her And you know that she's half crazy But that's why you wanna be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China And just when you mean to tell her That you have no love to give her Then she gets you on her wavelength and she lets the river answer that you've always been her lover And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know that she will trust you For you've touched her perfect body with your mind so again, this is a very personal lyric. It clearly comes out of his experience. And he said later that the woman it was written about was a uh, wife of a friend of his. And he said, I had to touch her with my mind because that's the only thing I could touch her with. And, um, you know, I like that tune okay, but it's really about the words, which are, which are wonderfully fresh and nice. But his voice, I, I, you can describe as reedy if you like, but it, I describe it more as nasal. And I, I used to say at the time that his tunes would tend to go up from the bottom of a register up to the top, which wasn't very far, and then come back down and kind of screw around in the low register for the rest of the, the rest of the verse. And this is a classic case of that. So I listened to, to, to Cohen some when he was first popular and then didn't listen to him for a long time. And um, then I was browsing, we were cruising TV cable one night with my brothers with a friend. And there was Leonard Cohen and what I heard him singing was this, which is democracy, which I'd never heard.
So I was just slayed by this song because you don't expect what's coming. One of the things I feel about, first of all, he's developed from from a lot of a lot of alcohol and a lot of cigarettes. He's developed this whiskey baritone that I like a lot better than his earlier voice. But by now he's really getting more ambitious in the lyrics. And the thing about a a Cohen lyric is that every, line by line, you never know where it's coming from. It can be something that's completely earnest, something that's surrealistic, something that's religious. I mean, he was a he was a he was an ordained Buddhist monk, I believe, and also a practicing Jew. And um, he was obsessed with Christianity and with Christ, and he had all these obsessions in his music. And they just came out in this amazing way, so that every line was a is a surprise sometimes, even though there's an overriding logic to it. And at the same time, he could do things that were absolutely sincere and profound. Um, and when I wrote the article, I, I, I don't know if, if Anthem was as taken as, as, as the kind of major song statement that, I'm, that I presented it as, but here is, here is something that is genuinely serious and profound and I think uh, whether it's not one of his greatest songs actually I think Closing Time is my favorite song of his. Maybe we should listen to that a little bit. Here's Anthem and it's the refrain which is so as I say with Dylan there's very little applicable to our lives. This is a profound statement about life. At the break of day Again, I heard them say, Don't dwell on what has passed away. is inevitably broken and that's the end of the refrain um, there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in and he means that contemplating and understanding the brokenness of life is how we achieve wisdom and that's a very profound statement I don't know if he originated it I mean he may have picked it up from Buddhist teachings or Jewish teachings you never know 
But it's it's profound, and that's something that popular music rarely is inspired to. It's sometimes tried to be, and it usually it's strained and faking it. Like the Stones, you can you all you can't always get what you want, get what you need. I've always found that forced and just boring. But um, this isn't. And I, maybe we don't need to play it because it, uh, the song "Closing Time" is my favorite of his because he. His, his refrains are often refrains on more in a sense of Yeats's refrains than, than usual pop music refrains. And the thing about Closing Time is it starts with this very cynical view of a bar and he's jealous of his girlfriend flirting with other guys. And as the song evolves, Closing Time begins with the closing of a bar and it goes on to the closing of, of a relationship and love and then to the closing of life. At the end, it, it's it's um, it's Yeatsian and how that refrain changes and develops and deepens every time it comes around. I think it's really remarkable. His uh, his voice you mentioned as being kind of like this, not really liking it in the beginning and gravelly and later on, um, like Lou Reed, another yeah rocker who had kind of self-admitted he said he had a bad voice and i think there are other examples of that well dylan had a terrible voice yeah and he also was no performer at all he didn't even try i mean he just stood there and did the stuff and they're kind of expressionless but um yeah musically what happens there where someone has like a quote-unquote bad voice but it winds up sounding good if it's expressive is one thing and and Cohen's later music is in, is inseparable from his lyrics, and and he doesn't do anything musically that he can't do with his voice. He's also not much of a guitar player, and neither was neither was Dylan. Um, you know, I've had high school students who could play better guitar than Dylan or, or Leonard Cohen. Um, but it's it's I mean a certain amount of his lyrics is the fascination of the lyrics and then there's this sort of a total picture you don't have to have a great voice to be a great pop singer um that's not if let's put it another way the greatest art is not necessarily the most perfect and often what's wrong with great art is perfectly obvious i mean bach to me the summit of music when he wrote vocal music he seemed to ignore the fact that singers need to breathe which is crazy in a way but um, that's just what it is, so you don't worry about that. And um, sometimes Brahms is on, over, on the edge and sometimes over the edge of sentimentality. And he gets a little verging on corny sometimes, but that's okay. And the, you know, the voices don't have to be pleasing if what you're doing, if that doesn't matter. Another, put it another way, great work is not work that's without flaws sometimes the flaws are perfectly obvious but it has the capacity to make them irrelevant mm. and the box weirdness of writing for voices as if they're violins doesn't matter when the music is great and dylan's voice doesn't matter when the song is really worthwhile yeah i mean tom waits is the great example of that I was playing Tom Waits once and my brother walked in and he said, Oh, the dulcet tones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's uh, definitely had a run in with life. Um, 
What about um, someone who has a really great voice in popular music, like Joni Mitchell? Are you a fan of hers at all? Oh, yeah. yeah. Both, both her voice and the, um, the songs. I mean, I know, do we want to play one? Um, again, sure. we're maybe running over here. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fine with, um, with time uh, as long as you are. So, um, I was going to play Doors Light My Fire, but everybody knows that. We don't need to do that. And I, I'm a, not that much of a fan of the Doors, but I like Light My Fire. That was an interesting kind of Bachian. and, you know, we all heard that opening organ tune, which is seemed to be like Bach. And, and Ray Watts' name said later, oh, yeah, that's what it is. And, you know, that, that kind of pleased us in the classical world, just getting into rock and roll, they could do something like that. The mm -hmm. lyrics are, I mean, um, Morrison was a very engaging singer. The lyrics are just sort of bullshit, but... Um, yes, he considered himself a poet. Yeah, I don't think he was much of a poet either. <laughs> um... But Joni Mitchell, I don't know. Give me some tunes. I she well, both sides now. I mean, that was one of her big hits, and it's a and it's a it's a it's a great hit. It's got a it's got its hook, um, and but it's a, it's a very serious statement about life in a wonderful way, and it's very personal. And, jo and um, Judy Collins did a great version of it too, and I think they were friends. Rose and flows of no, this is, this is another, another version. Go, go back and get the original. Let's see. Original studio. There, that's probably it. Rose and flows of angels ice cream castles in the air and feather canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that weave but now they only block the sun they rain and snow on everyone so many Yeah, I mean, there, there are better examples of her voice out there, but it's really good. Yeah, it's a good voice, and it's a distinctive voice. For one thing, she had a break into, into the high voice, which was absolutely distinctive. She had a sort of rich, low voice, and then this break into a kind of flute-like high register yeah. that is just, is just distinctive. It, it, she's immediately recognizable. It's, it's a good voice, and that's a great song about the loss of innocence. And, and like the Cullen thing, which which is gradually redefining re what closing time means, this the um, both sides now becomes a developing image of the loss of innocence with growing up and growing older. Um, and again, this is a kind of seriousness that pop music had never aspired to before, and it's one of the reasons she's one of the great American songwriters. You know, I've always said that to me, in a way, the great American age of songs were the 30s and 20s into the 50s with people like George Gershwin and Jerome Kern and people like that. 
and the music of those things is really much more musically rich. It's richer musically. But the fact is, that's not my generation. This this generation is my generation. And in many ways, I relate to these songs more than I relate to Gershwin, to a lot of Gershwin, not all Gershwin, and Jerome Kern and those kind of things. So, um, you know, that was before I was born. This This is what I was listening to and being fascinated by when I was in my teens and 20s. I want to, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but I do want to get your opinion, uh, unless there's something you, you want to get, get to in particular. You mentioned Captain Beefheart, which is so strange to so many people. Like my, my dad listened to like the top 500, you know, uh, Rolling Stone magazine albums. And the, I think one of two that he didn't like was Captain Beefheart, where people were like, what the hell is this thing? Um, well, I remember I was playing this for a high school class of mine in Vermont years ago, some Beefheart, and um, one of my students said dismissively at the end, you have to be on drugs to like that music. And I said, wait a minute, you're on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he kind of was at the time. He's a great kid, but he had a druggy period. I, I, I'd like to go back, if we have the time, and start with the, the yes. preface of Captain Beefheart. And I also have to go to the bathroom, so we have to take yeah, a couple yeah, minutes break. Take a little break. No, I'd like to play a little Frank Zappa. Okay, yes. Yeah, he, he and Beefheart went, Don Van Fleet went to high school together, I think. He was Captain Beefheart's producer. And really, Zappa is the beginning of the weirdness, I think, in, um, in pop music. It's a totally singular weirdness. Yeah. I'll be right back. Okay, no worries. Hey, hey. Okay. So Zappa, which is too big a subject, but I'll just say a couple of things about Zappa. At age 19, he appeared on national television on the Steve Allen comedy show, playing a bicycle, among other things. So Zappa grew up grounded in rock and roll and rhythm and blues and doo-wop. Let's not forget that the Mothers of Invention released a doo-wop album that, that, that sparked the doo-wop revival. Um, but he was equally grounded in, in avant-garde classical music like Edgar Varese and Charles Ives and, and John Cage. And that, that mix of, of things with a really exploratory sensibility just created an absolutely unique artist. And I want to do two things that are sort of both sides. And for one thing, he wrote a certain amount of straight classical uh, contemporary music and I, I applaud that. Pierre Boulez actually released an album of this. But I have to say, as an old composition teacher, that I think Zappa's straight classical stuff sounds sort of like an okay night at the graduate student composition recital circa 1978. Mm. He really didn't know how to put long pieces together because people who come up in pop music or in, in a way in jazz tend to have problems with that. Even Duke Ellington, who I admire extravagantly, had trouble with that. But let's play um, two, uh, two things from one album, maybe my favorite Mother's Invention album. Uh, first of all, his experimental side with, with recording techniques and electronics, nine types, and his puckish sensibility in titles, nine types of industrial pollution. <laughs>
a sort of soup of, of, of sounds that have no, you know, or deliberately no particular coherence. Zappa was a, a good guitar improviser, though. I think he wasn't quite as good as he thought he was. Some of his long solos to me are just too long. He thought he was could improvise like John Coltrane, but he couldn't quite. So, but, so you have things like that on Uncle Meat, and then you have this wild, wonderful rocker that has elements of doo-wop and jazz. He was much more into jazz than, uh, than, than the Beatles were, or than most of the time was, but just this raging irony and a, and a distinctive, surreal, puckish sentiment in the lyrics. It's just absolutely fun, but musically singular and, and dynamic. Oh, I'm sorry, this is uh, Dog Breath in the Year of the Plague. Dog Breath. <laughs> Great titles. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. That's it. Zappa described this as basically an instrumental album with which he put stupid lyrics, and I think, but I think his stupid lyrics are great. When you said this marks kind of like the beginning of weirdness, I, I can I can see that. <laughs> Not this album, but Zappa, starting with Freak Out, which was his first album. Okay. But w you mentioned like the influence of uh, composers like John Cage. He's very like. He's not even almost trying to make music. Um, right, he's into chants, and he doesn't. What it sounds like is not particularly important. How, how did this? I mean, because I I haven't been as big of a, a Zappa fan. Uh, I I just don't know as much about him. How did this guy become as popular as he did? I mean, surely he had some more like poppy. Well, this you know, right? this is a very compelling tune it's got a hook it's very memorable there was a phase where without particularly trying to i could i could do almost every song on uncle meat <laughs> because the it like some of dylan's crazier stuff and lyrically it's it's nonetheless memorable uh and there's there's a kind of steady sensibility of 60s 
teenagery about about Zappa that keeps coming up. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a very compelling tune, and you can dance to it if you want to. Um, but he was never top 40 popular at all. I mean, he never had a hit like that. He he did with his daughter, Valley Girl, but that was that was a different thing. That was something his daughter came up with. He said, you know, Daddy, will you record this for me? And he said, sure. And I think that's the only top 40 thing he was ever involved with. And he was a little resentful about it. He was a little, he was a little edgy about all that. But, um, um, but you know, Basically, my point about Captain Beefheart is that he was a friend of Zappa, and I think Zappa beget the Captain Beefheart band, and Be Beefheart just went over the top into absolute madness. There's a kind of catastrophic rhythm and blues quality to Beefheart. And his first album, Trout Mask Replica, was, was, was produced by Zappa. They had a sort of thorny relationship, but they basically were, were compatriots. And if you, I would have played something with Trout Mask. Let's, let's look at Trout Mask Replica and see what the tunes are. Yes. If I can remember some of these. Do you have one that has a list of tunes? Uh, yes. So they have uh, Frownland, The Dust Blows Forward, and The Dust... Yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at it. Okay. Let's try a neon meat dream of an octafish. Okay. <laughs> Tentacles test, enslaved, enjoin, enjointed jade pointed diamondback patterns. Neon meat dream of a octafish. Artifact on rose petals, in flesh petals and pots. Fact in feast, in tubes, tubs, bulbs, ingest, incest, ingest, ingest, in feast, incest. In specks, in speckled, speckled, speckled speculation. Bedlocks, rockling feasts. Let's do our This is just sort of madness chanted over, over musical madness. But the, the one I was looking on is on the album, Lick My Decals Off Baby, which is the title tune. <laughs> See if you can find um, Flash Gordon's Ape. Because this is more of a tune, and he was actually a good rhythm and blues singer. And some of his recordings are, you know, went in that direction, though there was always a certain catastrophic quality. Yes. Flash Gordon's Ape. Okay. No, Ape, A P E. Yes, yeah. Now, when you first hear this kind of thing, it just sounds like random madness, but it's not. It's actually very... He, he was extremely... He was a control freak and would rehearse till people went mad with... 
so this is actually quite precise madness, and it's 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 sort of in the tradition of free jazz and things like that, taken into a whole new territory of madness, and that that kind of crazed vitality and and the uber surreal lyrics are what uh, you know has always appealed to me about this. This is not easy listening music, and it's not dance music. Let, let me let me ask you a question. Well, it it is absolutely art. I don't know. I mean, it ain't Shakespeare, but it's it's art. Okay, so why is why is this different than say just getting someone who's never played an instrument before and just having them sort of you know bang on a on a sax or piano or whatever? And because they can't do the same lick over and over identically ten times, if that's what you need. I I, I get okay, but why is <laughs> I, I'm, I I do struggle listening to this. To, to appreciate it on any level, and I know I I heard the um, the Black Keys, who, who's like a a pop music band today, but I, I really like their music, and they were saying how they were big fans of Captain Beefheart. I just I did not get it, but I respect their <laughs> opinion. I respect theirs. Explain this to someone if you were trying to to convince someone that this is worth listening to. What would you say? Um, well, for somebody like me who's heard everything. Yeah. Um, including Cage. I mean, it's no, it's no wilder in sound than Cage was. Remember, Cage wrote a piece for 12 radios, and what you heard was whatever happened to be on the radio yeah. at the time. And he did another piece, which was scraping a, uh, a, a phonograph needle over various things like rocks. And the whole piece was like scraping your hand down a, down a blackboard. It's excruciating to listen to. And when, you, when you've heard things like this, this is not challenging to listen to as such but maybe you need to have unusually open ears and um uh in order to and, and, and to have experienced a certain amount of avant-garde music especially the 60s through 80s to really be able to get into this otherwise it's just annoying madness and i don't blame you at all if you don't have any experience with music like that well, but you might want to try Beefheart in some of his more traditional rhythm blues stuff, and you realize he was re he was a real musician. He was he quit music finally to do painting, and he did that very seriously for quite a while. A lot of people, including me, thought he was dead, but he wasn't. He was just painting. Hmm. Um, so I mean, this is an extreme, and I and I think part of my point in this whole when I started writing pieces down is that I wanted to start with "She Loves You," yeah, yeah, yeah. and end with Captain Beefheart as a kind of uh, with Zappa and Beefheart is sort of the end of this huge spectrum of pop music, nominally pop music. This isn't really pop music, though you certainly hear its roots. It's got a drum. It's got right. these kind of screaming um, sax uh, things that that if you were you. Um, if you heard modern jazz, experimental jazz of the 70s and 80s, you were familiar with this kind of thing. And that's part of where this comes out of, too. So in other words, it has a tradition. Um, but that, but that's sort of the, the spectrum that I wanted to get into and what we've touched on, rhythm and blues and, yeah. and roots music and folk music and, and experimental music and, and classical influences and Indian influences and all this stuff that for me as a musician who's interested in all these things, 